So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to the letter of James. Letter of James, towards the back side of your Bible, the skinny part in the New Testament there. As always, if you don't have a Bible, you can, op- you can open up to the app. You can download a free Bible app on your phone. If you don't have any of that, the Bible in the sky will take care of all of your needs. I'm going to take us back in history to start our message this morning, okay? The year was 1871. Say, yep. Long time ago. 18, I'm not, I don't even know how long it is. Long time ago. 1871. And what, is, what was called the Great Chicago Fire burned from October 8th to October 10th. Anybody heard of the Great Chicago Fire? Pretty notorious, famous, popular fire. This destroyed thousands of buildings, killed an estimated 300 people, and caused an estimated $200 million in damage. Legend has it that a cow kicked over a lantern in a barn and started the fire, which stretched four miles long and almost a mile wide in Chicago, and it burned up all the business district. This fire burned wildly, it said, finally coming under control on October 10th, only after the rain gave the firefighters the much-needed boost they need to put the fire out. The Great great Chicago Fire also left 100,000 people homeless, destroyed more than 17,000 structures, the damage is, again, estimated $200 million. This disaster prompted an outbreak of looting, lawlessness. I mean, you can imagine the chaos that would have happened after something like that. Companies of the soldiers were summoned to Chicago, and martial law was declared, actually, on October 11th, ending three days of chaos. And then several weeks later, that martial law was lifted. Now, as well known as we may know of that fire... Uh, We've heard about it. We maybe read about it. Maybe the History Channel does a little episode on it every once in a while. There was a larger fire which happened on the exact same day, causing way more damage in Wisconsin. The most devastating fire, it's been told, in United States history was ignited in Wisconsin in 1871. And over the course of that one day, 1,200 people lost their lives. Two billion trees were consumed by flames. And in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, it was a large lumber and sawmill town owned by a man named William Ogden. It was where one of the largest sort of wood production factories existed at the time in our country. And it was a particular dry day in that, in that time. And um, what they used to do when they cut down trees was a slash and burn effect and to create new farmland and in the process making um, the risk for firefighters more substantial. But in Peshtigo, like many other Midwestern towns at that time, it was highly vulnerable to fire because nearly every structure was a timber-framed building, prime fuel for fire. In addition, the roads in and out of the town were covered with sawdust. The key bridge was made totally out of wood. This allowed the fire for, to, for, from outside the town to especially pre- spread into Peshtigo, make escaping a fire in town difficult. On September 23rd, the town had stockpiled a large supply of water in case a nearby fire headed in its direction. Still, though, they were not prepared for the size and the speed of that fire. The blaze began at an unknown spot in the dense Wisconsin forest, and it spread to the small village of Sugarbush, where every resident was killed. High winds then sent the 200-foot flames racing northeast toward the neighboring community of Peshtigo. Temperatures reached 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, causing the trees to literally, not my words, an article, literally explode in the flames. 
despite the fact that this was the worst fire in American history, newspaper headlines on subsequent days were dominated by the smaller fire in Chicago. Now, both of those stories, although over 100 years old, they teach us a concept that we need to understand today. That a small spark, whether it was kicked over by a cow or started by a person, a small spark has the power to start a large fire. This morning, we're going to think about the fires that we start. Sort of the raging, ra- raging forest fires that, that we start by the way we speak. Whether or not you were aware of it, you have been responsible for starting a destructive fire in someone's life. But you didn't start this fire with timber or heat or gasoline. I'm not accusing anyone of being an arsonist. And if you are, I'll let somebody else deal with you. Because this destructive fire started by your tongue. Now, you know, I'm willing to bet that whoever or whatever was responsible for those fires all those years ago, they did not intentionally try to destroy entire communities. It was an oversight. I'm willing to bet those who started the fire would say it was an accident. It's just it, it, we didn't expect those things to happen. And I think in the same way, in the same small spark that we have to ignite a wildfire, we would say, I didn't expect that to happen. I overreacted. I said the wrong thing. I didn't think that was going to happen. The Bible says that the tongue is also a fire. A world of evil among the body parts. It corrupts the whole body. That means everything. And it sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it is, and it is itself on fire by hell. You know, it seems like week after week we've been digging into this ancient letter written by the kid brother of Jesus. And we can't get away from the warnings and the things that challenge us. Isn't that right? Say, got it. Every week, it's like, James, leave us alone. I get it, right? I'm wicked. Okay, story over. Move on. James has some really good advice for us. He has some really good ways for us to look inside of ourselves because he is writing to a people many, many, many years ago who are just like you and I. Imperfect, sinful, don't have it all together, but we're following Jesus because we recognize who he is and we believe in what he did. So how do we marry those two things together? How do we do it all? Let me encourage you before I get into the message that if we go through this life never looking to correct those character flaws hidden in our blind spots, we will not grow in our relationship with God. We will not grow in our relationship with people. Think of the blind spot as as those areas in life where you need to grow. Like you're driving down the road and somebody wants to pass you on the left so you get over then they hang out. On your left, you ever experienced that? You're like, I got over for you, now I can't see you. That's called a blind spot. That car is hidden in your blind spot. I'm actually blind spot, blind spot. I'm actually guilty of doing that because I set my cruise control. And if somebody wants to get over, I don't necessarily speed up. I just kind of hang out. Because some people get over and then they speed up. I'm like, well, what's the point of that? You know. So anyways, that's a different, that's a different story. There's no road rage here. I just I have some curious thoughts about drivers. But the blind spot, it's the same type of concept, is that you are not able to see it. You're operating in such a way, you're walking through this life, and there are blind spots that you have. There are character flaws that you have, and they are only uncovered and discovered by you when actually somebody outside you says, I think I need to talk to you about that. 
you shouldn't be doing that. That's not healthy. I think you can get better at this. In all love and sincerity, I love you. But please, stop doing that. It's a blind spot. If we go through this life without ever challenging ourselves to look for our blind spots, without ever asking anybody else to help us with our blind spots, we will never grow in our relationship with God. We will never grow in our relationship with others. So let's look at James chapter 3. We're going to read 12 verses this morning. 12 verses. All right, we'll start at James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small rudder. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. From the mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither. Can a salt pond produce fresh water? Amen. Let's just take a moment and pray. I think we need it. God, uh, direct our hearts and our minds. Teach us what we do not know. Reveal to us what we don't want to know. Give us the strength that we do not have to hear from you this morning. Amen. As you may have noticed, James has exposed a blind spot. A character flaw in all of our lives. Let me encourage you, everything within you will scream, I don't have this problem. That's where we'll start. Denial, normal, it's okay. So just sit in it for a minute, but I'm going to try to talk you out of it, okay? Because I read that and you were like, well, I mean, I'm not that bad. Listen, I had that thought preparing this message, so I know you're having that thought too. It's okay. Everyone's welcome, no one's perfect, okay? I don't have this problem. Everything within you will scream, not me. I mean, everybody else around me, sure. I mean, technically, I can't even stand them. They're so rude, but not me. But you see, that's not what James is asserting here. He says in verse 8, no human being can tame the tongue. No one can do it. James isn't the only person in history to identify that the human condition of potty mouth is rampant with everyone. All right, you can tell I got five kids, right? I don't know what else to call it, potty mouth, okay? 
Let me take you to some other parts of the Bible which speak about the tongue. And it's all throughout the scriptures. God over and over and over again will warn us and direct us to be careful of who we are and what we say. Here's what it says. Proverbs 11.9. These will not be in the Bible on the sky. You'll have to just listen to me. Okay. Proverbs 11.9. With his mouth, godless men would destroy his neighbor. It's true. Proverbs 12.6. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. That's weird. They go down in the inner parts of the body. Haven't really figured that one out yet. That was very interesting. Um, Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of what? The tongue. I think we can all agree that our words have tremendous power. People have been both elevated and cast down by the things that we have said. And so... We should be conscious about what we say, how we say it, because if we are not careful, we will start a massive wildfire in our lives and in the lives of others. Today's message, again, is it's designed to reveal the blind spot. It's designed to warn us, look out for the fires that we may start with our words. So let me give you a big idea for this morning. If we were to take these 12 verses, I do want you to realize and recognize that maybe the first, the first one or three, three I'm going to say three verses, are essentially a warning about those who would become teachers in the church. Now the Bible puts all these together for you. It kind of clumps it into one category. I could have preached these messages in two different separate messages. I could have said, I'm going to do a message about warning those who would pick up the Bible and attempt to teach others. That's a noble cause. I'm not necessarily flying over it because I don't want to teach it. I just think it fits well within what we're doing. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on those first few verses. But here's the idea. After the warning, oh, big idea, okay. I'm super excited now. You guys know how I get. Now, here's the big idea. Never doubt or underestimate the power of your words, okay. Never doubt or underestimate the power of your words. Doubt and underestimate, which we do. Never doubt the power your words have. Never underestimate the damage that they can do. So after the warning to those who desire to be teachers in the church, James says that if they teach the Bible, they will be judged with greater strictness because where much responsibility is given, much is required. After that, which we can talk about later if you choose, James spends a good portion of his time explaining why we should never doubt or underestimate the power of our words. And this is because that although the tongue is a small member of the body, right, it's the small muscle attached to the bottom of your mouth. That's it. It's not very big. I mean, even on a guy like me, my biceps are bigger than my tongue, barely. But it's still a small muscle in your body. It is not huge. Think of all the power that comes out of your tongue. That's why we should never doubt or underestimate its strength. Tongue is a small member of the body, yet it boasts great things. Some of you have been or are currently in a relationship with someone, whether it's a spouse, family member, friendship, coworker, work relationship, neighbor relationship. Think of all the types of connections and relationships you have, and you have been cut to the heart by what somebody has said to you. We've all experienced this. We have experienced the hurt that is caused by someone's words. But then if we think about it, it's not only what people say to us, it's what we say to them as well. We are guilty. 
we're all guilty of starting a fire in someone's life because of what we have said or what we didn't say when maybe we should have. Let me explain. I would, I would dare say most of us are aware of the things that we could say that would hurt or offend someone. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think we go throughout our day and say, I didn't think that was going to offend you. Now, that's possible. You could have said something to somebody and said, oh, I didn't mean it to be offensive, but they were offended. That's possible. But most of the times, and when we're at that point, we're ready to lay into someone because we feel like it, we know exactly what those words are going to do. We know exactly the power they have. But what we are less aware of are those circumstances when, he should have, when we should have said something, we chose not to. James is letting us know that it is damaging to cut someone down. It is damaging to be critical. It is damaging to someone's life to speak rudely to them. It's also damaging to refuse to apologize or to justify your actions by talking down to someone who was offended. Don't we love to do that? Listen, if you guys are not on board with me, I'm going to feel very alone up here. Listen to me. You know what really is really easy to do? is to let the person know why they're offended and why they're wrong that they were offended by what you just offended them by. We blame people for being offended by what we've said. We put it on them, don't we? You shouldn't have been offended. Here's why. We make them feel bad for actually being offended or hurt. It's a terrible disease and we all have it. It's called potty mouth anyways. Um, but it is easy for us to use the tongue purely for our benefit. We turn the tables on them. We say you shouldn't have been offended because of A, B, and C, and D, and all these things. All the while, they're like, what, what is going on right now? I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> and you were mean to me, and now you're telling me that I'm not allowed to be upset because you were mean to me. We can't get control of the tongue. It's easy for us to use our tongue to pure, purely for our benefit without ever realizing that we're starting a wildfire of destruction. Our tongues do the damage uh, also do damage when we do not uphold God's word. Here's another example. Um, let's say we call what is good evil and what is evil good. That would be damaging with our words. If you are a Christian here today and you read the Bible as the authoritative word of God, if you, uh, so, so if you're new here, haven't been here very long, just to let you know, everything that we do comes out of here. Okay? As a church, this is how we act with the Bible. It's up here. It's our authority over us. It's not on the side of us, meaning like we'll partner with it if we choose to. We don't stand on top of it. We are not an authority over it. The word of God has an authority over us. So everything that we say, do, act in, everything that we want to desire for our community comes from this word. When I speak up here, I try hard um, to not stutter, which you all know, but I try equally hard to make sure I'm saying what God is saying to you. Listen, I have friends and they tell me they don't need my opinion. So I am fully aware that y'all every Sunday don't need what I have to tell you. What you need is what God has to tell you. And so our tongue can do damage by cutting someone down. Our tongue can also do damage by not letting God have the authority in our life. We call what is good evil and what is evil good. Now to get his point across about the tongue, James uh, gives us a few illustrations. And it's actually kind of nice because sometimes the illustrations and the examples in the Bible, we don't fully understand, right? Because we didn't live that long ago, but we can totally get these two. These are easy ones. And so first one is horses, right? 
Now, I didn't grow up around horses, okay? My wife was, grew up in the farm community, okay? Like Amish buggies drove up and down her road. Like she gets it. I think she went horseback riding a lot. I was lived in a concrete jungle. My yard was that big, okay? We didn't, we didn't have the same kind of upbringing. I didn't grow up around horses. But I am aware of how powerful they are. Every summer, my wife takes our kids. She makes the priority to take our kids to the Kalamazoo County Fair. You guys ever been there? Now, we don't go at night, so I have to spend my mortgage on cotton candy and rides. Okay, we don't do that. What we do is we go during the day, okay, because all those barns are open, and we'll pack a lunch and spend nine hours looking at chickens, okay? Chickens, ducks, pigs, horses, what do you name it? We are there three days in a row. She's there with the kids. Three days in a row letting the kids just walk around and look at animals. This one time, specifically my kids, this one day, they were infatuated with the police barn, the mounted police force. Have you ever seen it? There's about 12 horses in the sheriff's barn. Those are the police officers' horses, and they'll ride them around and, I don't know, lasso people, I guess. I'm not really sure. But my kids love to hang out in that barn. Every horse has a name. They love to pet them, feed them carrots, and all that kind of stuff. Now, I, I do go every once in a while with them, and there was this barn of these mounted police force, but then I noticed around the corner there was a different a few different stalls, and the walls were much higher. And no matter how high the wall got, I could still see the horse's head over the top of this wall. This was no ordinary size horse. I had never seen a horse this big. I had never, ever in my life seen a horse this big. I call them the Budweiser horses. You guys know what I'm talking about? The beer commercial horses? They're called Clydesdales. I figured that one out. So these horses are the next stall over, and they are massive. If you've never stood next to one of these horses, do it, but be very careful because they're huge. So Luke is about one year old. This is last year, and I've turned the corner, and this horse is actually coming out of the stall. They're bringing this horse out the same time I'm walking in, and he flips. Like he's trying to claw back because he sees this massive thing in front of him. And I'm about six foot four, and I stood next to the horse, and its leg was still taller than me. Like, I was barely up to, like, where the neck starts. These things are, they're massive. Our, are massive. And yet, the rider on that horse was smaller than me, didn't weigh as much as me, in full control of this Budweiser horse. Full control. You want to know how they did it? They put a bit in the horse's mouth, just like James says. That's what he says. James says, the horse is guided by a very small bit. And the, the boat is guided by a small rudder. James says your tongue is like the bit in a horse's mouth. It's small, but it is able to control your entire life. That little guy, okay, was controlling this massive horse that I thought was going to stomp all over me. Yet it was calm and gentle and walked right past me as I was kind of like doing one of these. Walked right past me. Just as the bit in the horse's mouth allows that rider to control that massive ball of muscle and energy, the tongue controls our life. That's what James is saying. So I'm going to give you a main point for this morning. We have a big idea. Never underestimate Never doubt or underestimate the power of your words. That's the big idea. That's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Here's the point that James is trying to get across. I'm 
not going to go there yet. I messed up. You guys ever do that where you talk and then you realize you said something stupid? <laughs> Let me go back. We all love Kenny, don't we? Grab a gift on the way out, right? Okay. James says that the tongue is like the bit in the horse's mouth, okay? It's small, but it's able to control your entire life. So I think it's safe to say that we have all experienced being hurt by someone or hurting someone because of what we said. We've already established that. And here's why. I forgot. I got to give you some of this reason why it matters. Because we gossip. We speak negatively about someone and attempt to ruin their character. That's gossip. We become critics of people who we disagree with really easy and very fast. Because we speak with the tone of anger. Because we are sarcastic towards people. Now, real quick about sarcasm. Learn it from a guy who had to learn the lesson the hard way. Take it from someone who had to learn the hard way. Sarcasm is not good. Just so you're aware. Unless you're with a friend you've known forever. And they will not be mad at you. Tone down the sarcasm. It is only passive aggression with a smile. That's all it is. It's tough. Let me tell you, I've been married for a little while now. Those first few years were uh, like a training in why sarcasm could damage your marriage. Okay, take it from me. It was not good. It is not comedy. Sarcasm is not healthy. Whenever you are sarcastic, the person on the other side is doubtful, they're confused, and they're frustrated. Because you're not actually saying what you want to say. You say something mean with a smile. It's really confusing. I just want to give you that warning because take it from a guy who's learned the hard way. Being sarcastic with someone you love is dangerous. Now, if you have that one friend, we all know that one friend, right? They deserve it. But everybody else, everybody else in your life, especially the one you live with and wake up with every day, the one you want to spend the rest of your life with, the person you're pursuing, your children, specifically your children, Sarcasm is not healthy. And I know it's weird, right? Because we think it's comedy. It's not comedy. It's dangerous. Take that for what it is. Now, James says the tongue is the, the one thing no human can tame. We can tame an enormous horse, but we cannot tame our tongue. And for some of us, this hits close to home because the tongue has destroyed friendships. The tongue has caused ruined marriages. Our words, what we have said, has split up families. Co-workers have become enemies. And neighbors no longer live neighborly because of something someone has said. Nations go to war because of words. Maybe you're the one doing the damage. And maybe the damage has been done to you. One thing is clear. We have all been hurt because of something someone has said to us. Now let me get to some objections because I know we have them, right? Here are some very common, object, uh, common objections. Let, let me cover those type A people. This is a really good one. Look, John, I'm just honest with people. I can't help it if they're easily offended. You've heard that one? I'm just, I speak the truth, bro, right? It's all about truth. If you don't want to hear the truth, don't come around me. Listen, that's not nice, okay? It's not even true. It's wrong. Those are the type A people who are like, look, if you're offended by what I said, maybe you don't need to be around me. You know what you're saying, right? <laughs> you're saying I don't want any friends because I'm going to make you feel bad. That's not a way to influence people. I can tell you that right now. Screaming that you only speak truth all the time so people shouldn't be offended is not a way to influence people or make friends. You all know that book, don't you? That's not how it works. 
You're not going to win anybody over with the whole I'm just being honest approach. It's not going to work. Here's another argument defending our desire to destroy people with our words. But they asked a really dumb question. I know. I get it. Okay? Now, here's why this one is so close to home. I'm the guy asking the dumb question. Heard this one a lot. Totally understand. There are some questions that maybe should never be asked. Like, how do you fill a car with gas? Things like that. But why should someone's level of intellect determine whether we're mean to them or not? The level of someone's intellect should have no bearing on how we approach people. It never should. So maybe the saying is true. There never really is a dumb question, okay? And don't even say, right, there's just dumb people. Don't do that under your breath, okay? Because I know that's where you went. Those anonymous, you're not winning anybody, anybody over those arguments. Now, I will agree that speaking truth is essential, okay? So if you're the type A person that says, listen, I try to be nice, but every time I just say what I think I should say, people are offended and I don't have any friends. Okay, well, let me help you out a little bit, okay? I will agree that speaking truth is essential. But what is also essential is being gracious, okay? Say, got it. I'm stumbling, people. I'm going to get there. Hold on. You're in for a long ride. I got like 42 minutes left. Okay, so, <laughs> right, okay. If you speak truth without being gracious towards one another, you have failed, just so you're aware. Just being truthful isn't enough. That's half of the equation. Now, if you are overly gracious without ever being truthful to anyone, you have failed. you got to have both. Jesus, who is God in flesh, came to earth to basically tell everybody, you better come to me or else really bad stuff's going to happen. And a lot of people came to him because he was gracious with his truth. He drew people in to what the truth of their lives were. If you speak truth without being gracious towards others, you have failed. If you speak overly gracious to one another without ever being truthful to anyone, you have failed. And this is really hard to do. Some of you right now could walk out of here today and be like, all right, I've had enough. i got to go and try that. I'd agree with you. We have to try this. Never doubt or underestimate the power of your words. Let's go to the main point. Now I'm ready. Okay, main point. We're going to do main point, and we're going to go to application in just a second, okay? Big idea, never doubt or underestimate the power of your words. We, we kind of know it, but unless we get reminded of our blind spot through God's word, we forget about it. Amen? Good. That means cool if you're like new to church, okay? Amen is like, hey, that's cool. Okay, so main point, here it goes. Your tongue controls your destiny. Big claim. That's a huge claim. The things that you say will dictate how your life goes. That's a huge claim, I know. Your tongue controls your destiny. Look at verse 6. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the body parts. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it itself is set on fire by hell. Now, after describing how powerful our words can be and how powerful the tongue is, James provides the one warning we all need to hear, that poisonous speech poisons the relationship. Poisonous speech poisons the relationship. Someone once said that, that the types of relationships we have will dictate the type of life we live. And I think that is true. 
You take someone and say, let me observe all the relationships you have in your home and at work and with your children or wherever and your extracurricular activities. We could probably understand how your life is living, whether you are joyful or not, whether you are happy or not, whether you are at peace or you are not. Poisonous speech poisons the relationship. But there's also something we must remember in this because we should remember that anytime we are confronted with words that are meant to hurt us, because that's, I think, a lot of us are going there this morning, aren't we? We're, we're going, yes, I, I needed to hear this. I needed to be encouraged because I've been cut down. I also cut people down. But man, I, it's hard for people to understand what's been said to me. I'm with you. We also need to remember that when we are being confronted by someone who is attempting to hurt us with their tongue, church, hear me on this, hurting people will hurt people. Hurting people hurt other people. That's just the way it is. When people are hurting, they're going to hurt others. It's the perpetual cycle of hurt that we find ourselves in when we don't know how to respond to it, when we don't know what to do with it. Specifically because the way we respond just causes more hurt to somebody else, and then it comes back our way because they're hurt, and then we launch more hurt their way. The last one standing wins. I guess that's usually the way we think about it. The cycle of using words to cut others down will never, ever end unless... Unless, and here's the good news, that we can be freed from our anger, freed from our bitterness, and freed from the fear that plagues us. If you're here this morning and you struggle with relationships because of the way you speak, and you know, we know this about ourselves, okay? We know this. This is me uncovering your blind spot in the most gracious way I know how. Some of you know that you cannot sustain friendships, that your marriages are not joyful, that your kids don't respect or love you. Because of the words you've chosen to use each and every day. You know, I fall into this category. Paul writes, a man named Paul writes most of the New Testament. And he tells everybody, I'm the chief sinner, just so you're aware. <laughs> We're all sinners, but I'm the worst. It starts with me. Just last night, I'm putting the kids to bed and we, we sort of have this routine, right? And uh, Saturday nights, I'm a little bit more on edge than normal and I shouldn't be. Right? Sunday's my big work day. I got to get up every Sunday and talk for 45 minutes. Okay? It's just the way it is. I love it. That's my job. I'm not saying it's bad. I love it. But Saturday, my mind starts to get consumed with all sorts of stuff. I'll go, the whole message is wrong. I got to redo it. And Sherry's like, oh, my word. Take it easy. Right? I do things like that. All 3,500 words, they're wrong. Start over. I ain't got, but I ain't got time for it. But I can't get up there and say nothing. And if I get up there and say that, it's going to be really stupid. They're just going to stare at me. This is how my mind works on Saturday, okay? You can, you can pray for me. So I got to go and put five little crazy sinners to bed with this state of mind. This is no excuse, by the way. I'm not making an excuse. This is all my failure. Sometimes when I put my kids to bed and they want to act like children, I'm not very nice. I'm not very nice. When they act like children because they're children, I'm not very nice. Whose fault is that? Mine. It's mine. I have all this anxiety and this fear of not doing something right and something inserts into my life and I'm going to attack it with my words. And I'll show you, I'll push you as far away as possible. Listen, if you are the person who is using words to hurt others, I want you to know it's probably more damaging than you think. But there's hope. 
okay? I tell my kids all the time, I want to be known for always saying sorry. I want my kids to grow up and go, man, my dad was always apologizing to us. Have that as a goal. In your marriages and your friendships, have that as a goal. Like genuinely apologizing. If you struggle with relationships because the words you say want you to know you do not have to live like this. You don't have to carry the burdens of that anger and the bitterness and the fear. Because when, we're, when these things are removed from us, when the weight of these things aren't crushing us anymore, we're actually able to use our words to lift others up. We're actually able to use our words to affect the world for something better. But if you walk around with those burdens way too heavy for you to carry, you were never meant to carry them anyway, your words are not going to be seasoned with any sort of graciousness or truth or anything nice. And this is where the main point can help shape our future. Because the tongue, meaning the words we choose to say each and every day, does have the power to control our destiny. Here's another thing that I just want for my, my family and my kids as a father, okay? If you don't have kids, maybe you can think of a, another scenario like this. I just want to be a house where my kids are to come back for Christmas. That's pretty much it, okay? Amen. I, I just want to grow up and go, if my kids go, it's the holiday, I want to go back to dad's house. If I can do that, I totally won, Okay? That's pretty much my goal, that when my kids are able to take care of themselves and stand on their own, if they're able to come, I want them to come back, which means it's a place of peace. It's a place of rest. As a guy who grew up in a home with a lot of yelling, a lot of yelling, let me tell you, it's hard to break that cycle. It's really hard. But see, when Jesus does a work in my life and he can do a work in your life, then you are freed from doing that. You know, salvation just doesn't mean you're saved from God's judgment. Salvation means you are saved and freed from not acting like a mean person. Pretty basic concept. You're freed from that. Because you have a different God you're worshiping. You're no longer worshiping yourself. You're worshiping Jesus. James uses a very vivid illustration to show how sinful the tongue is. He says, the tongue is set on Fire by hell. Now, this is a very weird statement. When I read this, I didn't exactly know what to do with it. So I started reading some stuff. Here's what it says. The word that James uses for hell, check this out, describes a local trash dump in the valley of Hinnom. Okay? Now, this is where James knows this place exists in ancient days. The word he uses for hell describes a local trash dump in the valley of Hinnom. The original readers understood exactly what James was alluding to. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is a, a deep gorge southwest of Jerusalem where trash, bodies of the dead, animals, executed criminals burned continually. It was always on fire. Jesus referred to it as Gehenna in the New Testament. It was a local trash dump, and fires always burned to consume the trash. In fact, this same valley was originally used by people called the Canaanite people. And many years before James even showed up, before Jesus even showed up, these people would practice child sacrifice to a false god named Moloch. But then when God's people came in and tore down that god and said, this should not happen anymore, we should not be sacrificing children in this way, they condemned that place and said, we are never going to enter that place, we're only going to throw our trash into it. That's basically what they said. It was only when the king named Josiah came on the scene before James was even born that he outlawed that practice of child sacrifice and this valley was only meant for trash. It's no doubt the tongue can be used for Satan's destruction in our world. Am I right? 
It's really hard to see good news in all this. It's really hard to sit here and say, thanks for uncovering my blind spot. I feel even worse than I walked in. Look, I'm with you. But if we never uncover our blind spots, we cannot grow in our relationship with God. We cannot grow in our relationship with people. And it's especially hard when a guy who wrote the book of the Bible is telling us no one can tame the tongue. (laughs) All right, so there's no way out. What do we do? We live in constant hypocrisy. We, we want to be nice, yet we fail every day. Living in that tension is exhausting, is it not? It's really exhausting. The tongue can get us so twisted up. One minute, James says we're singing in church, praising God. The next minute, we're cursing out our friends. It's like, man, those Christians are messed up. And we all say, yes, we are. Isn't that right? It's exactly what we say. In fact, that's why we're here. That's exactly why we're here because we know that. So let's apply this now. Now that we've been beat down to the ground, so we don't even want to talk anymore, right? Now that we've established that every time we open our mouths, we may hurt someone, what do we do now? Here are three things we can do. You guys ready? Say, I'm ready. (laughs) You're ready for me to end. I get it. Okay, number one. Number one. Number one, it's time to repent. It's time to repent. A word that's not used outside of the Christian context at all. It's time to repent. James and Jesus both agree. And they both said, the world will know who the Christians are by the fruit that grows on their trees. It's just an illustration. The world will know who we are by the things that come out of us, by the things that grow and the characteristics that come out of our lives. James even follows that up. Do fig trees go on olive trees? No. Do grapevines bring forth figs? No. Therefore, unrighteous talk, evil talk, should not come out of a righteous person. Now, the reason I said it's time to repent, here's the difference now. I think this is really important for us to know. Because this is different than regret. Repentance and regret are two completely different things. I think we can be on the same page and say, I regret some of the stuff I did last week. Now, if your emotions stop there, that is a worldly regret. You will do nothing about that. Because time will heal your wounds, and you'll just get over the thing you regretted. Listen, I want to call you to stop regretting things. Because you'll drive around that cul-de-sac forever, and you'll never get out. Worldly, Worldly regret will do nothing for you. But repentance, that will do everything for you. And repentance is turning from the sin that, that God just exposed in my life. Turning away from it. Let's say I'm going this way because I can't walk that far behind me. Let's say, let's say I'm going this way. I'm going to repent and I'm going to turn and I'm going to walk this way. It's taking another direction in life. It's following after what God wants for you, not what you want for yourself. Repentance is renouncing your sin, turning towards God, grabbing hold of his forgiveness, and finding freedom in his power. That's repentance. If I could get one thing across for you this morning, stop regretting the things that you do. Start repenting about the things that you do. There will be a difference there. Because you will not struggle with the same thing you struggled with last year. Let me tell you, in your walk with Jesus, although it is hard, and you wake up some days and you say, I don't want to follow Jesus today, right? And then after you've had coffee, you say, I can't wait to follow Jesus today. That's kind of a normal thing. Let me tell you, in your walk with Jesus, repentance is where your maturity shows up, not your regret. 
I don't want you to struggle with the same thing you struggled with last year. I don't want you to struggle with the same thing you struggled with last month. Because we get to grow in our relationship with God. We have more dependence on him and less dependence on ourselves. Stop with the regret. Start with the repentance. Okay? If you don't fully understand that, mark on that what's next card, and I will talk to you. I'll probably buy you lunch too, so that's cool. Number two. Number two, it's time to repent. Number two, it's time to apologize. Darn it. I knew he was going to say that. Listen, it's time to apologize. Be someone who's known for apologizing. Because we can do just as much damage when we don't say, will you forgive me, right? That can be just as damaging as saying something mean. There's no greater, greater evidence in your maturity than your willingness to apologize when you've been wronged. I want you to live with this goal in mind. Be someone who genuinely apologizes for the wrongs you commit. Be someone who genuinely apologizes. Everything within you will say, don't do it. <laughs> in fact, the longer you wait, the, the less likely you're about to do it. Man, if you want to know me, I'll tell you. If you really want to know about me, ask my wife, right? She'll really tell you. And let me tell you, when me and my wife, we had an argument yesterday. Um, we're healthy. Okay, we love each other. Just <laughs> clear that up. But we argue, right? And the way that we want to argue is we actually want to have a disagreement in front of our kids without it being rude so we can teach them what tension looks like and reconciliation. So, right, not screaming at each other, but we don't go hide in a room, right? If you grew up in one of those homes where you knew mom and dad were mad because it was silent for four days, okay, you have to change that culture, all right? You have to change that. But here's what we do. We, we have this conversation in front of the kids. And let me tell you, if one of us was offended by the other, and the longer we wait, the more we justify why we're not going to apologize. That's, that's the devil, just so you know. That's not God. The longer you wait to apologize, the longer it's going to take for you guys to become together again. Whether it's friends, coworkers, family, children, daddies in here, you are never tough enough. You're not too old to get on one knee at your kid's eye level and say, Daddy yelled at you. That was sinful. I am not perfect. I was wrong. You didn't deserve that. Will you forgive me? Dads, you're not too old enough to do that. It's an important thing. It's time to apologize for the wrong that you've done. It's not going to be easy. It's going to feel weird. But let me tell you, there's going to be a burden lifting from your shoulders. You may not be able to fix the entire situation. I'm not saying that's even true. But you're going to lift a burden. Number three, last one. It's time to put others first. It's time to repent. It's time to apologize. It's time to put others first. Here is my conviction. Here's where I think the Bible kind of lays out pretty clearly. There are two great commandments that Jesus said. Here are the two things that God's people need to do. You need to love God with everything you are, and you need to love somebody just as much as you love yourself. That's what the church is called to do. And when you put others first, if you live with others in mind, your speech will be seasoned with good news people need to hear. Because you will constantly be thinking, I need to make sure they're healthy. I need to make sure they have a good day. I need to make sure I'm not rude to them so they cannot have a bad idea about who I am. If you put others first, you'll start talking differently. If it's all about you, if it's all about the things that you need or the things that you can't do, then your speech is going to reflect that attitude. And this is really hard because we are consumed with ourselves. It's completely natural. It's hard and it's not easy. 
But it's time to repent. It's time to apologize. And it's time to start putting others first. Because when you put others first, your speech will follow that. We can take four extra seconds to stop and think before we blow. We could change the world. If you're here today and you are overburdened with the damage that your tongue has done, there is a way out. There is. Because there's repentances available for you. It's time to repent. It's time to apologize and make those relationships right again. And it's time to put others first. There is good news for you. You don't have to live the way you've always lived.